My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement or other person. Alright, let's start the show. So, hi everyone. Today we are here with Heidi McAlpine, who is an unaccredited neurosurgery registrar at the Alfred Hospital. Thank you for joining us. No worries. Um, so could you please tell us a little bit about your journey from medical student to now um, and how you sort of come into neurosurgery? I think neurosurgery is not certainly not something that I planned to do mm-hmm. before I started medicine and it took a while to sort of come around to the realization that I actually wanted to be a surgeon. So it was somewhere in the end of medical school and the start of my junior years where I started thinking a little more about it. I'd always wanted to be a neurologist. Okay. Everybody told me that I was going to be a wonderful physician and that I looked like a physician <laughs> and that I would, you know, that was my, that was my course. Yeah. Um, but as I said in my um, final few years as a medical student and the first few years as a junior doctor, I found that I just love surgery. Mm-hmm. I love the time in theatre, the quietness. I like uh, being able to physically do something, change things with your hands. Yeah. And um, so I guess the natural progression was to move over from neurology to neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. In terms of what I actually did, I, I did my internship at the Royal Melbourne yeah. and uh, a surgical HMO year at Royal Melbourne again. And my first year as an unaccredited registrar in neurosurgery last year at RMH. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of months, I'm a couple of months into my second year at the Alfred. Yeah. That's great. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what your typical day involves and how much time you split between clinical and non-clinical work? Of course. So my day starts at seven o'clock. In, well, my day starts at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah. when I wake up and get myself ready for work. But my ward round starts at seven o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. So that's variable depending on how many patients are being picked up overnight, etc. But generally takes about an hour, an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, ICU patients and then our regular ward patients then we typically have clinic or meetings mm-hmm. or have to go to surgery so for example my last day at work which was Friday yeah. I did a ward round mm-hmm. with um, you know other other registrars and our residents and then I went and assisted on a surgery so a, a ventricular peritoneal shunt mm-hmm. in the morning and then in the afternoon we had our clinic so the clinic uh, went from two o'clock to five o'clock then we did what we call a board round which is we sit down in front of the, the board which lists all the neurosurgery patients mm-hmm. and we talk over them with the nurse in charge and address any issues that have come up during the day and uh, visit patients that have become unwell or something's changed during the day and we visit our ICU patients yeah so we sort of do one and a half board rounds every day yeah Cool. Um, what would you say is the most rewarding part of neurosurgery? The most rewarding part that I found of just being a doctor is mm-hmm. the time that you spend with patients. Yep. So I think you've got to be passionate about working with the general public in mm-hmm. any job that you do. What's drawn me to neurosurgery is that I love 
I love everything from being with patients quietly in clinic and hearing their stories in detail mm-hmm. through to the unexpected, getting a phone call through the on-call phone. Someone's just come in after a large MVA has just blown a pupil and has an extra jewel that needs to go to theatre mm-hmm. now. Um, the patients that have affected me the most have been people in, in a very wide variety of circumstances. So mm-hmm. a couple of cases that spring to mind are a patient that I had very little to do with and then a patient that I had a lot to do with. Mm-hmm. So there was a pa- one night at the Royal Melbourne I was on call um, and I spent, I got a phone call about an elderly woman who'd come into the emergency department, GCS3, unconscious, Mm -hmm. who had a very large intraparenchymal hemorrhage. And this is almost something, you know, I looked at the scan and it was clearly an unsurvivable case. It's almost something that you could deal with over the phone. But of course, you know, I went down and I saw her Mm -hmm. and I called my boss to confirm that this is not, you know, this is unfortunately an unsurvivable situation and Mm -hmm. they certainly agreed. And... The ED doctors said, that's okay, thank you very much for coming along, we'll take things from here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to go and talk to the family now and I obviously I offered to go with them and speak with their family because I think it's important to put on a, a united front that everybody has been involved in their care and made this very difficult decision but clearly the only unfortunate decision. Yeah. And so I spent some time with the family and told them, that this was an unsurvivable situation and didn't think too much more of it. It was in fact one of two similar cases that night. But then approximately a month later, I got a little card in my pigeonhole and a, a big box of chocolates saying to Dr. Heidi neurosurgery registrar on this date. And there was the most heartfelt, beautiful three page card mm. from the family of this patient. Mm. And why it's been so important to me is that this was 15 minutes of my life, but it might have been the most important 15 minutes of their life. And it reinforced how I like to practice medicine, which is spending time with patients, spending time with their families and living by the doctrine that you, as a doctor, are there to relieve suffering. So even though I knew that there was no surgery that was going to be done on this patient Mm. and there was nothing that I was going to do for them, even over the phone and on the computer, I felt that it was important to go down and speak to them and that was reinforced. The second case, which was quite interesting and has stayed with me, was of a a woman in her Mm -hmm. mid-60s who was in a nursing home with advanced early-stage dementia. And somewhere along the line, a rehab physician had noticed that a predominant feature of her Alzheimer's was urinary incontinence, which had come on early, and that's not very typical. Mm. So they did, you know, they reassessed some of the CTs that she'd had, and they decided that it's possible that this woman had something called normal pressure hydrocephalus, mm-hmm. which presents with a dementia, a change in your gait, and urinary incontinence. So this woman I met as an inpatient, she was non-verbal. So her background was she was a professor at a university, very, very high functioning, fantastic woman apparently. And um, now she was high level care nursing home, dependent of her activities of daily living and non-verbal. And many um, 
you know, many doctors had seen this woman and everything sort of fitted with Alzheimer's and this didn't, her presentation didn't particularly fit with normal pressure hydrocephalus, but it seemed appropriate to consider surgery for her because it may change her quality of life. And, you know, she'd been seen by a different neurosurgeon, but then she'd come to my boss and my boss had decided that surgery was the way forward. Mm-hmm. So she underwent a very invasive procedure called a ventriculoperitoneal shunt. And, you know, there were people that criticised that and there were people supported that, but it's what her family wanted, so we went ahead and did it. Mm-hmm. And um, after the operation, she was about the same on day one. Uh, I think day two, she started saying single words, which was very exciting for everybody mm-hmm. involved. Um, and she was making small sentences by the time she was discharged back to her nursing home. Six months later, I had largely forgotten about the case, but, you know, thought, well, that maybe she did have a bit of normal pressure hydrocephalus mm. on top of her Alzheimer's. And she came to the clinic and I recognised her name and I went to the waiting room and tried to physically see where she was and I couldn't yeah. see her, so I said her name. And a lovely, put-together woman with her high heels on and her fantastic, gorgeous little designer handbag <laughs> strutted mm. in to my clinic appointment and just lay down the law asking all sorts of very intelligent questions about her condition and where to from here. Mm. She was completely cured. She did not have Alzheimer's. Yeah. She now lived completely independently and was um, in a graduated way returning to work. And I think that in surgical specialties, Mm. you often have this unique um, ability to every now and again come across these absolutely wonderful stories, which are few and far between, but Mm. where you get the chance to be involved with a case that really, really changes someone's life. Yeah, that's really cool. (laughs) Um, What aspect of your job would you say you struggle the most with? The thing that I find the hardest in neurosurgery is when things don't go to plan. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of surgical registrars and consultants would agree with me that when things go well, it's pretty wonderful. Mm-hmm. But when there's complications yeah. of a surgery that you've performed or have been a part of, it's very difficult to deal with. And if you're someone who's, you know, a bit more on the emotional spectrum and um, likes to spend a little more time getting to know patients and families, that can be particularly difficult. And that's certainly what I found the hardest when there have been surgical complications. So that's something that the patient didn't have before they came into your operating yeah. theatre and they've left with it. Yeah. Whether it's expected or unexpected, it's very difficult to deal with. An understandable part of the job. I'm sure everybody would agree, but it's when it happens, it's it's very difficult. Yeah, that's fair enough. Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible, and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds, and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. Um, so I imagine there'd be quite a few like emergencies in neurosurgery. How predictable would you say your work hours sort of are and like how often are you on call or how often do you do weekends? 
Well, my life last year as a registrar at Royal Melbourne and this year at the Alfred are quite different. Yeah. But I'll tell you what I'm experiencing at the Alfred at the moment. Mm-hmm. So the roster is very, very good and conducive to life. Yeah. I work about one in four weekends. Yeah. I do no on-call. They now have um, – they previously had a, a, lo- a lot of on-call, including long weekends every third night, etc. and, um, you know, received a lot of feedback that that was difficult for the registrar, so they subsequently have employed more. So I do mm-hmm. no on-call and about one in four weekends, something like that. Um, my hours are typically seven till five, mm-hmm. but – once a week or twice a week, I'll do what's called on-call in inverted commas. And what that means is you're holding the on-call phone. So life becomes a lot more unpredictable when you're holding the on-call phone. So I told you about going to clinic at two o'clock and, you know, going to their elective surgical list at, you know, 9am. But when you've got the on-call phone, that's when the calls come from emergency and Mm -hmm. from every emergency department in the state saying, you know, we've got a patient, 57-year-old, they've got a large intrapancoma hemorrhage or whatever, yeah. they're in Bendigo, what do we do? So that becomes a lot, uh, a lot more difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't change particularly the hours that I do. Yeah. So if I do overtime, it's at this year, it's because I want to be there. It's because I want that experience or I've followed a patient through and I want to go to their surgery or... etc not because I'm I'm made to and the the consultants are lovely they always say you know oh but you finished um you know you finished at six o'clock are you or five o'clock are you happy to stay around for this surgery and if not there's you know there's somebody else there yeah that's really good um so how would you say your work-life balances and family balances at the moment well I think everybody everybody has a a different idea of what work-life balance should be like and for me, I feel like I'm the right balance. So yeah. obviously you met me today in my home mm-hmm. with my husband and my cat. So I spend <laughs> a lot of time with both of them. Yeah. Um, I, When I'm studying for an exam, work-life balance goes a little bit out the window. But I, I would say that's probably true whether you're a medical student or an intern or a mm-hmm. registrar or consultant even. Um, but now now I'm currently not doing exams and I spent the whole weekend scheduling social events rather than doing any work yeah <laughs> so That's I'd awesome. say it's pretty good <laughs> cool um so what do you think are some of the unique obstacles faced by women during surgery during doing surgery sorry there are less women in surgery yeah. than men and I think that brings forward some obstacles that are there really by virtue of there not being as many women doing surgery as men? Okay. So currently at the Alfred, I have no female consultants and I don't believe they've ever had a female consultant. Mm. And I'm the first female registrar that's been there in, I think, five years. Oh, wow. So I do find that I often get mistaken for being the physiotherapist yeah. or the nurse. So sometimes on ward round, I'll be with my male resident and I'll come in and talk to the patient. And I always make a point of introducing myself as a neurosurgery doctor. So there's no ambiguity, but patients have a lot in their mind and sometimes they're not listening to every word you say. And very, very often they will look towards my male resident and say, what do you think, doctor? Or tell us more, doctor. Mm. 
and they <laughs> sort of tend to steer them back, awkwardly steer them back in my direction. Um, so one of the obstacles is that you often get, well, I find that I often get mistaken as someone who's not a surgeon. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't, I've never had that in a way that's malicious. Mm. It's just by virtue of, you know, my current workplace, there just hasn't been a woman around for a while. Um, so that will change, I think, when more women start to do surgery. Yeah. So do you think um, we're kind of moving towards that path where more women will end up doing, doing surgery? I hope so. Yeah. But I've always felt that it, it takes women to do it for more women to see that it's doable and so on and so forth. So yeah. I think it will just get easier and easier. One of my mentors at the Royal Melbourne, Kate Drummond, mm. is a fantastic and inspirational neurosurgeon. She was the second neurosurgeon to train in this country. Yeah. And I can't imagine how difficult things would have been for her going through I think it's hard for me because people mistake me as the nurse, but I can't imagine back when there was almost nobody who was a female doing surgery. So I think that my experience will be different to hers. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, in 10 or 20 years time, maybe there won't even be a difference. Yeah, that's really good. Um, Can you discuss the possibility of starting a family or having children while you're in a surgical training program and how easy or difficult that might be? So... As in surgical training programs in general, I have many friends that are, you know, starting their families whilst they're doing training, Mm -hmm. many female friends, I should say. Uh, I don't have as many female colleagues in neurosurgery that I know doing that, but I think that's because there's just not many women in neurosurgery. So I do have a consultant at the Royal Melbourne who has three children. I believe she had two of them whilst she was uh, training Mm -hmm. as an accredited registrar. So it's certainly doable. Um, The Neurosurgical Society of Australia releases uh, a document regarding training and, you know, your rights, etc. And there is a specific clause that says you can take time off for parenting. So it's not specific gender-wise, but it's for parenting. So I think whether you're a male or female, it's difficult to start a family whether you're doing surgery or something else in medicine, it's it's difficult to start your family, Mm -hmm. but I think it's doable. And I think there is support. That's good. Do you think the amount of support that you get um, has changed sort of over the years or like while we're moving, we're trying to to become more progressive and having women in surgery. Um, And do you think there's still room for improvement? I, of course, there's always room yeah. for improvement, but I, I really think that things are, are moving in a more progressive direction. Yeah. And sure, there are old dinosaurs out there that think that you should be married to the job mm-hmm. and didn't know their kids when they were growing up. But I really think that the holistic view of medicine isn't just something that is happening in the world of GP. It's happening in physician training. It's ha- happening in surgical training. And... I do hope that it would take consultants to change, but it also takes registrars, residents and the whole community to change. Yeah. So I think as we get you know more women through and more women having families and more males having families and spending more time, um, more time with their children, that progressively, um, progressively things are going to change. Mm. 
So what do you think are some things that sort of medical students or junior doctors who are interested in potentially pursuing surgery, um, what can they do in terms of advocating for a change in like the culture of surgery and making it more easier for women? I think you just need to not be derailed in what you want to do, whether that's surgery, whether that's having a baby. If they're happening at the same time, then do them at the same time because the system's only going to change and the culture is only going to change by people pushing those boundaries. And it's, as I said, it's difficult for me to assess as an unaccredited registrar when I don't know any female unaccredited registrars who have children in neurosurgery. But if I wanted to have a baby, I think I should just have one now, you know, because then other people can look to me and see what was my experience and how can that be bettered for the future. Do you reckon you'd get much, if you were to have a baby now, do you reckon you'd uh, experience much resistance in sort of being able to continue to work or taking time off and coming back to your job afterwards? It's difficult to say, but I I do imagine that it would be a supported decision. Mm -hmm. Obviously, hospitals have um, maternity leave and maternity policies um, and paternal leave and paternal policies. So... I don't know the answer yeah, I don't know anyone okay. who's gone through it, but um, the friends that have gone through it in general surgery, for example, mm-hmm. have been quite supported, very supported. And as I said, as more, especially women, because it's harder because we physically have to carry a baby for yeah. nine months and then we have to feed it. Yeah. Um, as more women do that, the obstacles are highlighted and addressed. Mm. So I think it just takes more people doing it like having children during their training to find out how they can be best supported yeah do you reckon these issues are sort of more prevalent in uh, neurosurgery compared to other surgeries given neurosurgery is uh, a lot of time commitment I guess it is a big time commitment I honestly don't know the answer yeah because as I said unfortunately I, I don't know any unaccredited registrars that female registrars that, mm. that have children. I do know um, many of my male colleagues have started their families and they've been you know, granted parental leave and obviously it's taken into account when they've got to go to their kids' school play or they're, you know, it's certainly a culture where they're able to say that they'd like to do those things mm. and they can go and do those things if necessary. So, Would you say there's a significant difference between just sort of surgery and physicians? in this regard potentially because there isn't much of a gen there isn't so much of a gender bias yeah so there are role models and there are people that are there are women that are having babies and families etc so Mm -hmm. it's quite different i have a friend who's um a pediatric cardiology fellow at the children's and that's you know although it's i suppose a physician's specialty it is quasi-surgical and um, a lot about it surgical you know they do a lot of on-call and they do procedural work and it's very male dominated but because it's in pediatrics and the majority of doctors in any pediatric center are now women Mm. the culture is very different towards childbearing and raising because a lot of people like there are a lot of women so that means there's more women having babies starting families and so it's the pathways are more understood and more supported because they're better defined. Yeah, that's fair enough. 
Cool. So I think that's all the questions that I have um, at the moment. Do you have any advice that you could give to medical students or interns who are just sort of starting out or anything that you wish you had known when you were like a junior doctor? Hmm. That's lots of questions in one, honey. <laughs> I like it. Um, I, you've heard this before, but try and experience everything that you can. I think what you're doing with these podcasts is fantastic because it is difficult to get hands-on experience and all the specialties that you'd like to. Mm. But if you can, try and get hands-on experience and see, see what people are actually doing day-to-day. So... And spend more time on ward rounds than in your textbooks. <laughs> that's what I'd say. Because that's what you, you can see what you're physically going to be doing. Yeah. And try and work out your career path from there. Um, the other thing that I would say is just ensure that you look after each other. Mm-hmm. So everybody that you're studying with at the moment, you'll have friends, um, you'll have people you don't like, mm-hmm. you'll have people that you think will be bad doctors or... There's just a whole spectrum. But these are all people who are going to be doctors and they're all going to be your colleagues and it's important to respect them Mm -hmm. and it's important to look after each other because it's a tough specialty. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the med collab. That's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show. In regards to neurosurgery in particular, uh, what would you say is the most rewarding part? So I thoroughly enjoy the adrenaline rush of when, you know, the on-call phone goes off and you're in the middle of doing something and suddenly there's an emergency downstairs and Mm -hmm. then you have to go and then you have to think quick that you've got to remember your ABCs and you have to make split-second decisions that are going to change this person's life. Mm -hmm. I also, of course, love the scope of surgeries. I love being in surgery. So sometimes there's quick surgeries that are life-saving, such as placing an external ventricular drain. It's very, very exciting when someone's coming in GCS3 because of hydrocephalus. I once popped a drain in 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 the emergency department because it was quite an emergency and the patient woke up. So they had to be resedated while I finished suturing, but it's um, very exciting. So those little surgeries right through to... um, you know, the big 12-hour aneurysm, AVMs, etc., which are painstaking work, but um, very precise. Yeah. And I, I like the fine work that we do with our hands as well. Yeah. What sort of people do you think should do neurosurgery? I don't think that there should be a stereotype. Mm-hmm. I think the people who should do it are people who enjoy the work. Mm-hmm. So they've tried it. They've properly tried it. They've been to theatre, they've done some small operations, and they really love it. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the surgeries that you are involved in? The surgeries range from very small surgeries. Mm-hmm. So we place, you know, on our own, the registrars can place external ventricular drains, which are a small and life-saving procedure. Mm-hmm. So what that is, is someone who has hydrocephalus for whatever reason, um, the procedure takes under an hour mm-hmm. 
-hmm. Often we do it uh, in the emergency department or our intensive care unit because it's so urgent. But if not, we can do it in theatre. We, you know, do a small cut and we place a, a drain through the brain mm -hmm. and into the ventricles to release the pressure in the brain. It's scary because it's a blind procedure that you do on landmarks, but it's very exciting and it's a life-saving procedure. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's one of my favorite, well, it's terrifying, but I do love doing them because it's something that, it's a simple procedure, but it saves someone's life. Yeah. And that goes right through to the, on the spectrum to their very long and complex surgeries, such as AVM surgery or complex aneurysm or complex tumor surgery. Mm -hmm. So that is, of, is undertaken by a very experienced specialized neurosurgeon uh, with a junior burger like me assisting. Mm -hmm. But it's, um, you know, painstaking and very, very fine, fine work. And to be fair, that is not everybody's cup of tea in neurosurgery and not every neurosurgeon does that kind of work. Okay. Um, but the people that do, I thoroughly respect and I very much enjoy their, um, the fine work with your hands. Yeah. Um, are you looking to subspecialize within neurosurgery? Probably, yeah. but most, I'm too junior. Do to most know. people sort of do that or are there yes. many general neurosurgeons around? There are some, and most have uh, most. So when you when you've done your fellowship exam, mm. you are a general neurosurgeon. You have to be able to, you know, clip aneurysms, take out tumors, do back surgeries, the full scope. Yeah. But then people often go on and do fellowships and super subspecialize, mm -hmm. um, which would be the most common pathway that people would do a neuro oncology fellowship, for example, and there'd be an oncology, you know, a brain tumor specialist, for example. Mm. Um, so you're applying into a training program at the moment. Are you doing any sort of like extracurricular things like research or volunteering that, you know, to make yourself a better candidate <coughs> for the program? The neurosurgery application is very specific. There okay. is CV requirements. Mm -hmm. uh, the CV is only weighted 15% into your application mm -hmm. and it's very skeletal. It's largely based on the time that you've spent in neurosurgery. Uh, there is a small component of research, uh, but I think you know the maximum points one first author paper. So it's very important to be engaged in research, but just in general. But yeah. for specifically for the application, it's not all that helpful. Um, I do a number of extracurricular activities none of which help with finishing surgery. <laughs> yeah. So I run the Specialist Without Borders Junior Doctors Program and I take a team of uh, six junior doctors over to Malawi and Zimbabwe every year to upskill the local medical students. Yeah. But that's not something that is taken into account in any way in the application for neurosurgery. Okay. So I think the most important thing for junior doctors or medical students considering neurosurgery mm. is to get exposure to it make sure you want to do it all the all the hoops that you have to jump through you're going to have to do as a junior doctor yeah it's important to be engaged in research but i think it's more important to figure out that it's what you want to do or otherwise yeah that's fair enough okay awesome Thank oh i didn't you. talk about complications very much oh, sorry you can do it now it's fine do you want me to just say something yeah, about um, yeah so the complications in neurosurgery are often devastating so whether it's a brain surgery or a spine surgery, if things don't go to plan, often 
the patient is irreparably or well, they're different to how they were before the surgery mm-hmm. having someone after a simple neck surgery become quadriplegic having someone after a brain tumor operation become aphasic is different to what other complications in other surgical specialties um, have to deal with so I think it's it's harder and it's it's what I find most difficult about the job are the rates any different I wouldn't think so if it I don't know the answer I haven't looked at all the specialties but I would imagine that they'd be less Mm -hmm. in neurosurgery because the stakes are so high you are even more careful than you could ever possibly imagine but that unfortunately doesn't stop complications from happening Because the stakes are so high, is there a are people less inclined to do surgeries unless they absolutely have to? It is a very considered decision to do surgery. So I think the primary role of a surgeon is to decide whether it's appropriate to do surgery on someone or not. So patients often rock up to outpatients with sciatica, for example, and you know they come in and they say, "So doc." I want a surgery because this leg pain is too much. And you look at the, you know, you ask them a bit about themselves and they're from home alone. They're barely coping at home. They've got AF and they're on warfarin. They've got congestive cardiac failure. They've got COPD. You can, it's important to get an anaesthetic review, but you think you have to weigh up. Is it, we can easily do the surgery, no problem. We love doing surgery, mm-hmm. but is it in the best interest of the patient? So it's important to counsel them through the risks, benefits and alternatives in that sort of case. Mm-hmm. Great, thanks for the advice and thank you for talking to us today. Thanks, Connie. <laughs> no worries. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. Alright guys, see you next week.